Shut up and sit down. everyone I was <laughs> so earlier today I had gotten um, an email from someone um, professionally speaking and they were asking um, about a synopsis that I had um, written um, about five years ago and never did anything with and um, so I responded to the email and then I got to looking for the synopsis and I found it about an hour ago. Um, and this was a full synopsis for a 95K novel. It was a proposal. Um, it's about 50 pages. So I've been reading it, and I forgot to – I was so interested in what I was reading, I forgot my podcast. You should have seen me running around the last two minutes doing my business. And I had to – girls, I'm at that age where – I don't know I have to pee until I have to pee so bad I can't stand myself. And then I come running in here, and I barely got on the line when the music started. (laughs) Because it starts without me. It's automatic. So anyways, tonight, in our ever-ending, never-ending exploration of tropes, um, we're going to talk about the SmackDown which I hate, I hate the term SmackDown. I really do. It's super annoying. It's just, it's it's a, and I didn't name my podcast SmackDown because I didn't actually want to get like a trademark hit from the WWE, you know, just in case, you know. Um, my chat room isn't letting me in. It's terrible over here. Refresh, refresh, refresh. It's pretty damn bad when your own chat room won't let you uh, in. Anyways, um, <clears throat> hopefully that will solve itself. And if it doesn't shortly, then we'll be transferring the chat to Blog Talk, which I know people hate. So, um, but um, I won't be able to see you guys <laughs> otherwise. That's really annoying. It's just like a blank page. Anyways. Well, there it goes. No, no. I don't know what that is. Um... I'm going to go ahead and open up a chat room on Blog Talk. Uh, so you guys might want to refresh if you don't already see that connect, that that box for the chat down there. I don't know if it's actually going to be there or not. Um, I don't know if it turns on automatically or, or not. There's nobody in it, so I don't think so. So if those of you who are listening on the page, um, 
you might want to refresh so you can get the chat room. Um, I don't know. Maybe I just need to... All my shit hates me today. I just, I've, I've had a day. I've had a, it's been a shitty day. It's, um, anyways. You might be able to see me in chat, but. There it goes. There it goes. Okay. And boom. I'm in the chat room. Boom. Okay. None of that drama is solved. <laughs> Five minutes dedicated to that kind of drama. But I did. I was running around like a little crazy person because I was so enthralled with something I wrote um, basically five years ago. Uh, and it's like, it wasn't even a story. It was just basically a summary of a book. That's what a synopsis is. It wasn't the actual book. Um, when you write a synopsis, you basically dedicate... Um, I don't know, um, three or four, yeah, me personally, five to six paragraphs for every chapter. <laughs> Although I did have someone say once that it should basically be one paragraph per chapter, but I've never been good at sticking with that as a rule. But thankfully, I'm not often called upon to write a synopsis because it's not good. I don't, I'm not very good at brief, you might have noticed. I'm a little wordy. <clears throat> Anyways. Anyways. Whoever said brevity is the soul of wit never met you. <laughs> That's right. But back to SmackDown. Like I said, I didn't use it in our um, title for two reasons. One, I actually hate that term. And two, um, I was afraid that I might get sued by the WWE. <laughs> well, you know, they're still angry over losing um, the WWF fight, so they probably would. <laughs> they're just looking for a target right now. I don't want to be it. World Wildlife Fund says, you can have our acronym when you pry it from our cold, dead fingers. Or, you know, honestly, if um, if they could guarantee me that I could I could meet The Rock... I might be willing to indulge that kind of um, legal pursuit as as long as I didn't get the people's elbow. <laughs> I don't actually want the people's elbow, but I would like to meet The Rock. <laughs> Speaking of The Rock, have you guys seen that new picture of him? Um, they put out he had no, he had a um, Lord he had he has a beard and it's all salt and pepper. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh, wow, that does look good with the sunglasses. Holy crap. Yes. Holy crap. <laughs> you know, we're Googling shit. <laughs> it was, it was, I was like, wow, hello, Dwayne. <laughs> Anyways, so um, we're going <laughs> to talk about uh, the moments um, in a story when your main character um just well just has their moment just um just um just has their their 
they're given the space and the time and the and the bravery and the whatever to tell everyone around them what they think. Or just I also one person. think this this particular concept. Yeah, right there. Look at that shit. Damn. <laughs> it's just like what? <laughs> Hello, Dwayne. <laughs> he didn't need to find a way to be better looking. I just have to say. <laughs> he really didn't, but he did. He found one. <laughs> I'm not mad. <laughs> I'm not mad at all. Wow. <laughs> I didn't even know I had a thing for facial hair. Until oh. I did. <laughs> just like, I'm pretty sure that fair, that most men look better with a beard. I mean, not all. Not all. Definitely not all. I'm trying to get my husband to grow one, but he's not on board. Daniel yeah, Daniel Radcliffe does look awesome. He, he went from from youngish to maybe too young man to holy shit. <laughs> yeah, he went from Harry Potter to holy shit in in like three months of facial hair. <laughs> I, I showed my mom that picture of him with the beard and she was like, that's not Harry Potter. I said, that's Daniel Radcliffe. And she was like, holy shit, what happened to him? I said, I know, puberty smacked him upside the head, didn't it? Oh, stunning. The beard does him a wonder. <laughs> it's just amazing. He's he's a cute kid, right? Um, even as an adult, I mean he's he's an adult but he's but clean shaven, he looks very young and cute. With a beard he looks like a grown man. <laughs> it's it's yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, the title of my podcast comes from, yeah, that's the one right there. That's the look. The, uh, comes from a line in what might have been where, um, some aliens, um, have been assholes and, uh, Rodney and John are talking about it. And at the end of the conversation, Rodney says, I hope we sent those assholes sternly worded surface to air missile. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of how I view um, anytime Rodney gets the opportunity to verbally eviscerate somebody. That's a good synonym for it, verbal evisceration. Um, yeah. Uh, that he's basically, you know, launching an RPG at some an intellectual one at the very least. He's just, you know, so, but what I was going to say is that in fandom, this particular trope can and often does turn abusive. There is a fine line between defending yourself and attacking somebody else. And when you're mm-hmm. writing a character, um, like McKay, or even Bilbo Baggins, I think, um, comes to mind. Um, yeah, the the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings did me no favors on my beard fetish. I <laughs> Just put that out there. Michael Wesley doesn't need to grow a beard. It, it, I'm, I'm not sure I'd recover. 
I had to go into therapy or something. <clears throat> but um, it there comes a point when your character stops being righteous and becomes cruel. So you need to not cross that line when you're taking your character on um, a journey of reckoning, of 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 getting their own, of um, coming into uh, a situation where they can be honest. Do you, am I getting my point across? I hope so. Yeah. It, it, right now we're just full of beard porn, <laughs> and I'm not mad. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of my chat room on my site. Not only can you all cuss like sailors, you can post pictures of beautiful men and beards. <laughs> See, he's close. If if he grew a full beard, I'd, I'd probably go camp out at his house. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, I think um, there is a we talked about on another podcast that there's a there's there's a line <clears throat> where people think that you know often think that like independent or like you hear, you hear about like something tagged independent Harry and it's actually asshole Harry and independent seems to mean speaking his mind a lot um, not 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 in everybody's mind but this is how it's sometimes in deter- tropes interpreted it means speaking his mind telling people off. And telling people off who deserve it for the acts that they deserve it for can be very cathartic, but it can cross the line into assholery very quickly. And one of the goals of, for a writer is never to make their main character unsympathetic. You want the character, you don't want your hero, whether they're an anti hero <clears throat> or a traditional hero, <clears throat> pardon me, to. Um, have everybody kind of going, hmm, I don't know, that wasn't made up the best choice. Or, you know, you don't want your audience second-guessing your character's actions. I mean, unless you've got, like, a red herring going on. I mean, sometimes that can be a a thing. Um, <clears throat> I was reading a story, and I'm not going to discuss the title or the author in question or even the circumstances with which I was reading it because I don't want to um, appear to be bashing because I'm not. Um, I don't know what her intent was. Um, and I say her because I think most fan fiction writers are female, even if they're, if they're not. <laughs> I assume they are. And I think the vast majority of fan fiction writers are female. Um, mm-hmm. I would say upwards of 75%, maybe even 80 Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so, though. Um, <clears throat> but there was, a se- there was a scene where the bad guy was female. And the good guy uh, delivers his smackdown in such a way that somewhere in the middle of this scene, I started to worry about the woman. I started to, to fear for her like only another woman can. It became a very visceral thing, and I had to close the story. I didn't finish it because the author had taken the main character, a man, to a a place 
where he felt emotionally, mentally, and physically unsafe. And she was the bad guy. She wasn't even someone I was supposed to be sympathetic to. And I, it, it was it was deeply disturbing. Well, there's there is a, um, I don't know about I, I can be a little bit. Um, it's hard for me to judge <clears throat> confrontations or my favorite term for, well, my grandpa used to say when he, he needed to have an uncomfortable conversation, he said that we needed to have a moment. Um, but, <laughs> you know, growing up, we always called it a come to Jesus meeting, which colloquially typically means more like an intervention. But in our family, it always meant that you were about to get a talking to. <laughs> um, so, but there's a thing when it's, when a man and a woman having a confrontation, I mean, as a writer, um, my tolerance for what he can say and and do is um, is different if he's confronting a woman versus confronting a man. And I have the same issue as a reader. Um, there are times like in Tony Ziva confrontations when I'm kind of cringing because I feel like Tony goes too far in some stories. Um, like Tony, like Michael Webley's a lot, lot taller than Cody de Pablo, so like when he's um, like looming over her, I in, in stories like I I kind of cringe a little bit, um, even though you know Viva's full on capable of defending herself and probably killing anybody she wants to. It makes me uncomfortable, and it's probably a double standard, but um, there it is. Um, the, the smackdown, as it were, or the come to Jesus meeting has to take place at a distance. Um, if it gets close with a woman, you know, I just I just start getting uncomfortable. There are two and scenes I, in know, Ties to... That Bind that I agonized over for that that very reason. It's the scene when um, Rampart ends up disciplining Sam Carter. Um, and I originally plotted that as John, but when I got into it, I couldn't go there because I felt like it was opening up my main character for something um, emotionally uncomfortable for me as a writer and as and for the reader. And I didn't want my readers to become uncomfortable um, with who John was. And so by transferring it to a third person... The content still happened, but it divorced John from the physical action, and it felt okay to me. But recently, and I don't recommend you do this, um, (laughs) holy shit, Richard Dean Anderson, what the hell? You guys have got to stop. I'm not going to be able to pay attention to the podcast. (laughs) Um. Don't start reading Ties of Bind in the middle. <laughs> you need to start at the front so you can work your way in. Because I started, in, I wrote it, and I started in the middle, and I went, holy shit. And I'm holding the back of my head through most of a lovely agony. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, oh. <laughs> what what'd you write, you kinky bitch? Just, you know, 
But the other scene is when he disciplines another Dom for crowding Rodney and the Dom is female. Um, and I rewrote that scene five or six times. And eventually how I did it is I wrote it as if Summers was a man. And then I went back after the fact and changed all the pronouns and the name. And I don't know. That seemed to make it easier for me. But I don't know how the readers actually responded to that particular scene. Um, And I know that, you know, Rationally, plot-wise, it needed to happen. Um, yeah, it needed to happen. To I was on mute. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, from a, from a writer's perspective, from a writer's perspective, um, in Ties That Bind, I could see how it wouldn't be be much different. Um, that it would be as difficult as it would be in any other circumstance because it's just, you know, but... When I read Ties That Bind, I didn't struggle with either of those scenes. I guess it's because I was so immersed in the reality of that world where mm-hmm. um, this, the, just the notion, you know, how abuse is handled and, and the, the, just everything is different in, in, in how, how punishment is handled and, and the, the gender divide and, and, you know, conceivably men and women probably served together in the military a long time before they – um, nudity is handled different. I mean, it's just, um, I was so immersed in the world that you had built that it didn't feel um, like crossing a line, like you had crossed some kind of taboo, which sometimes I, when I read confrontations between, um, you know, male and female characters in contemporary settings, I do feel like um, sometimes authors cross a line. But I didn't. Yeah, I felt like I was. It's because I'm. I'm. The world is the world I live in, and so ties that bind is not the world I live in. So um, right. But I could see that if the reader experience is very different of those scenes than the writing experience would be, because as a writer, it's not going to probably feel any different to you to write that kind of scene. But I could definitely see how. Uh, doing a pronoun change if you're struggling because you know intellectually you know that it's not any different in for that scene but you know we have this emotional component we have to deal with when we're writing we're not you know so we you got to sometimes play a game a little game with yourself to get you over a hump and if changing pronouns is what does it that's what you got to do well after I did that and I went back and changed it to the right character and the right pronouns it I read through it, and and none of it bothered me. Because the thing is, is that in in, particularly in ties that bind, um, um, there is no difference, really, between a male dom and a female dom. Uh, And as the gender roles are skewed in a world built on submission and and, and dynamic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she, um, 
is no different than John and shouldn't be treated any differently than he would a male dom. Right. But even John admitted in his own head that if it were a military dom, a man, he would have already kicked his ass. And so there is a little bit of a gender thing there where she pushed it because she felt like she could, because she was a civilian. That's because she's a civilian. That's not really a gender thing, though. And didn't feel like he would do anything to her, and she got a surprise. Yeah, but I, I don't think my read on that scene wasn't that John would do it any differently than uh, if if it were a male civilian. I mean, the issue was male versus female, military versus civilian, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, but John is more careful with women. Um. And I but that could just be think that's a byproduct of his pleasure training than anything else, um, because he was taught in Singapore. Um, his pleasure master there focused on John's relationship with women because John avoided them, and those lessons would have. Um, I wanted those lessons to to resonate throughout his life and for him to um, acknowledge his preferences for men, basically, but to also um, not allow his preferences for men to create a distaste for women. Mm-hmm. Which I think could probably happen in a world of dynamic when you are um, not bisexual and you're expected to be. On the other hand, it could also, there might have been also been a, well, it's your story, you would know, um, is that he was <laughs> raised with all men. He was raised with all men. I think if John yes. had perhaps an older sister who kicked his ass on a regular basis, um, he might have had a little bit of a different perception of women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you are a summary of your experiences. Um, but it's... Uh, I don't know. I, there's nothing about those particular scenes that um, I consider abusive. But when I was writing, I was very careful always in ties that bind to to um acknowledge the issues in um how the world was built and how people interacted with each other um i was very careful about uh on-screen discipline um and the perceptions of what could be considered abuse because often during the posting of that series many readers accused me of advocating domestic abuse Many, as in maybe between 20 and 30 people, individuals contacted me um, 
to accuse me of that kind of thing. And I imagine um, other BDSM writers and fandom have probably encountered that too. So I don't feel particularly yeah, special pretty, on that point. I think it's pretty common with BDSM um, um, that people will lash out, especially if you're a writer who has written a lot or written prolifically not BDSM stories. Um, people will lash out. I, it's almost like they act like they're being betrayed or something. Um, it's completely illogical, but there you have it. Anytime I move to a new fandom, I pick up a new pairing, there's always like five or ten people who are utterly betrayed. <laughs> it's like, oh. How could you? How could you? So that BDSM you? thing. But I'll never forget when I first posted the very first episode of Ties That Bind. I posted it. And the very first comment I got was, well, I'm not reading this shit. Okay. Well, pardon me while I get all sad. <laughs> Double bird. Eight years later. Seven years later. I don't know. Double bird. I wasn't double birding at that point. Now, maybe you only got one bird, but you definitely deserve two. We're giving you two now. <laughs> I was like, really? I don't give a fuck if you're reading it or not. Go away. What? Who bothers? <laughs> Who bothers with that? I'm going to give you a clue. No one gives a shit if you're not going to read it. Fuck off. Don't. <laughs> no one cares. But, but back to the whole theme of um of uh of of verbal evisceration um and the abuse angle. It is profoundly easy to cross that line when your when your character, your main character, is male and his enemy or enemies are female. But you can also cross that line if all the characters in the scene are male. Because you you need to have a very firm, dark line between your righteousness and petty-ass abusive language. Now, I have a foul mouth. And I cuss a lot, so my characters end up cussing a lot. But I am very careful about having my characters actually curse other people. There's a um, difference between having my characters say fuck and having my characters say you bitch. Yeah, name calling. I I try to stay away from name calling. And there's yeah, it's it's one thing to use you know to say oh what the fuck is wrong with you versus, you know, you're a fucking moron. You know, there's a completely different tone there. Because that's what happens is people, instead of saying, this is what you did that I had an issue with, saying that very, you know, but with emotional language, you know, this is what you did and this is how it was wrong to you're a fuck up and no one's going to ever want to work with you or, um, you know, it's just, um, you're too stupid, you know, especially when you start getting into really insulting language, like you're stupid, you're a screw up, 
um, no one's ever, you know, you're a bitch. Um, Honestly, honestly, word of advice, do not have your male characters call female characters, even bad ones, a bitch to their face, unless that bitch is literally trying to kill them. (laughs) Yeah, or or whore. I actually get really tetchy about whore. Um, Whore and slut really bother me because I feel like it's like antiquated form of insulting people. Um, Especially slut, you know, because it implies there's something wrong with sleeping around. Um, (laughs) So. Did you see what she just put in the chat? Those of you on the podcast, like you hold her, my dearest best friend in the world, just put in the chat room. Whore is a profession. It's like calling someone a plumber. <laughs> you plumber. Yeah, you can have your you plumber. Yeah, you can have your bad guy do this kind of stuff, guys. But this is this is just not. It, it, it makes your, the hero difficult to hero or heroine because it's people. I mean, it's like I've read some some um, verbal eviscerations by women in stories that are nuclear, and it's like, oh, we really do. And that's like a level of verbal abusiveness that nobody needs to read from the lead in the story, and. Um, it's not. I mean, it's funny because like I there there was there's um, some writers who write their female characters being much more verbally abusive and find it acceptable than they would write their male characters. Um, and I just I guess I, I don't have time for that kind of double standard. In, <laughs> even in my fan fiction, I'm like, nope, <laughs> no, no, no. It. You want your reader to sympathize with mm-hmm. your main character, male or female, you want them to to identify with them. Um and so you need to keep your your main character on the right side of of the line across the board. Um and also this is a good time to to talk about um your characters uh Look, it is okay for your character to burn a fucking bridge down on their way out. But it is dumb for them to set fire to their own apartment. (laughs) (laughs) So what I mean to say is, is your character's desire for revenge should not end up fucking them over too. Character has bitten off their own nose. To spite their face, you've got a problem. Yeah, I've seen um, some, you know, quote unquote, the SmackDown scene in like some NCIS stories, where the only way Tony could have gotten gotten away with that kind of public evisceration of his team is if he never planned to work in law enforcement again, ever, ever. 
So the idea that he's leaving, walking out of that bullpen, either going to another NCIS team or going to the FBI or Department of Homeland Security or going just to L.A., I don't, it doesn't matter. The idea that he's going anywhere in law enforcement with that kind of behavior in public at NCIS is ludicrous. Um, for fuck's sake, don't, don't have do. Tony commit treason on his way out the door. Yeah. That's a prison sentence. Literally, he would go to jail. Yeah. Because if a classified op goes wrong, and let's say Tony gets hurt and it's team, I'm just making up something here, folks. And Tony gets hurt and he decides to rip his team a new one. And he knows that his superiors are going to cover it up. And his method, the methods for handling that, if it's a classified operation or to go up the chain of command, you've got the inspector general of the Navy, um, you'd have the secretary of the Navy, um, you know, he could push it up his chain of command that has clearance to know about the operation. What he cannot do is take the details of that operation where he got fucked over and say, take them to the media. That is treasonous to reveal classified information to um, people not cleared to know it. So, you know, he, he, he it has to be um, – and Tony's smart enough not to telegraph his intent to continue to pursue something that he's been told to let go. So um, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's troubling – it's troubling characterization um, all the way around – if he yells at Vance publicly, if he tells everybody I'm going to the media with this or whatever he does, um, if he does any of that stuff or even reveals it to the FBI, he can't do that. Problematic how some of that stuff is, it is handled sometimes in NCIS fan fiction. Um, but Tony sometimes, Tony standing up for himself and some NCIS stories is basically means Tony's about to get abusive in public in the bullpen. Um, and it makes me very uncomfortable because I, it's not how I perceive the character as someone who goes for the throat um, in a personal way. Like it's one thing to yell at McGee about um, playing fan fiction with Tony's life and personality. It's another thing to tell McGee he's a shitty writer. Right? I mean, there's one would be the equivalent of SmackDown. That would be the reckoning, the come to Jesus meeting about how dare you play fan fiction with my life. And you're a shitty writer anyway. No one's going to buy your crappy book. Except just his book was actually a bestseller. Right. And it's childish. And so aside from being insulting and mean and abusive, it's childish. Um, so it's a matter of like, how do you want when you go for the? Because the thing is, sometimes in some characters like like Harry Potter, Tony, um, we just feel so much injustice heaped on these characters that the the um, this sternly worded surface to air missile, when it comes, um, can be disproportionate to the offense, and the character can it can lash out in ways that make us dislike the character. And that should never be the goal in a story or when you're using a trope is to make your main character unlikable. Um, I've had to step off some Harry Potter stories where I started hating Harry. I mean, that's just like, oh, my God, what an abusive little twat. 
that was sort of where I went with, you know, I was like, oh, my God, he's horrible. Um, and this isn't independence. This is mean. This is abusive. This is, this is horrible behavior. This is I wouldn't want. Um, and childish, too. Often, in, often with Harry, it often, often comes across as childish. Um, so it's like a child throwing a tantrum. And so it's, uh, it's just a trope. But it can be so satisfying. When it's done well, um, when that verbal evisceration or the come to Jesus meeting or I, a lot of my stories, I have some flavor of this. Um, I tend to favor private discussions um, like um, in memories, memories. Yeah, Gibbs. Gibbs delivers, has the discussions with Abby and McGee separately. And I think more than one. Uh, he doesn't get them together and just beat them both up at the same time. Um, which is fine too, how whichever way you want to play it. But I, it's just my, I tend to favor um, and I, I, notice, I, I notice that I often have Gibbs doing it, even though Tony's off in the wrong party. It's also probably because probably it's more interesting for me Um to have Tony just get fed up and walk away, and Gibbs is the one who has to um, that needs to deliver that message because Gibbs is the one that caused it. So it's up to him to fix that shit. So a lot of times I have Gibbs being the one. Um, I did that in Memories. Gibbs did it in Emergence. Pretty much Gibbs did it in Emergence too. Um, Tony, when Tony does do it, it is a very quick. You know, he like says two or three things and then turns around, and walks away because he just had enough. Um, Death of Silence. It was definitely Gibbs who gave the message. Um, I was unconscious for most of that story, anyway. Now I did a, I did an EAD. I have an EAD that I never. It's probably the most. Um, angry I've ever written Tony and it's the it was impetus um yeah it was it, it, I have an EAD called impetus that um where Tony is um departing NCIS in the middle of the night gathering up the evidence he needs to pass on to director Vance about the breach of procedures around dead air and he's trying to talk to Gibbs the next day and Gibbs finds out about it in the interim and he comes to confront Tony and their conversation does not go well. Um, but I don't think at any point in that discussion does Tony get abusive. He's angry. He definitely gets very angry, especially when Gibbs confirms the suspicion that Gibbs wouldn't have done anything to Ziva and McGee because Abby was involved. Um, and he gets very angry, but I don't think he – I was very careful to try to make sure he didn't cross the line into abusiveness. And um, – get insulting um that he he definitely gets angrier than i normally write him but he is expressing a lot of hurt under that anger and uh, a lot of betrayal but he's not calling his names or telling him that he's awful uh i think the only time i ever have tony come right out and tell gibbs something that he's you know make a something that could arguably be consult- insulting was in is in the descendant where he tells him he's a shitty team leader 
But he's not even angry when he says it. He's like, look, it just needs to be said. You're a terrible team leader. <laughs> and he is. I mean, there's no. Yeah, he he's a terrible. That came up more out of, you know, tired, I'm tired and I plan to have a long kind of discussion with you, but I'm tired and shit's happened and that, you know, area attacked me in your basement. And now I'm just going to say it. You're a shitty team leader. So, you know, you should never have been given a team to begin with. And that's what I know. That's one of these conversations we have work is because you don't know how to lead a team. Um, so that's, that's probably the meanest thing Tony ever says to in any of my stories is you're a shitty team leader or something along those lines. But I do favor, I do favor tend to, you know, personally favor. Now what I like to read is often completely different, but I do tend to favor um, in my own writing one-on-one confrontations because um, I think that's the way it goes in real life more often than not. You're not usually ripping a room full of people a new one. It happens sometimes, but it's usually because you're the boss and your whole team is fucked up. Uh, and in which case, you'd be very careful what you say because you it's one thing to kind of reprimand your team. It's another thing to demoralize them unless you're planning to fire them all. You know, that's completely You're different. all fired. <laughs> but, you know, in, um, in Primus, um, there's two times when Tony gets into a confrontation in that story with a, with a woman. The first is with Ziva. Um, he doesn't really get all that close to her. But it was a little bit uncomfortable for me because he's reading from her that she's been responsible for the, for the death of a guide. And he's pretty, he's certain because of the way he's reading her that she'd attack him if she could. So he basically sort of controls her, makes her drop the knife. That was uncomfortable for me to write, but I felt like it's what he would have done in that second circumstance. And then the other time in that story is he crowds, um, Elizabeth Weir, he physically crowds her. He doesn't touch her, but he physically crowds her when she won't back off and she keeps getting in his way. So he kind of starts growling at her and kind of physically intimidates her um, until she backs off. And then the minute she backs off, he backs off. So, but both times are a little bit uncomfortable for me, but I felt like he wouldn't have behaved any differently with a man in his face. And he probably would have been more aggressive with a man in his face. I think he would have put a man in his face in those circumstances. In the situation with Elizabeth, I think he'd have put a guy on the ground as opposed to just um, getting a little bit growly with her. But both are still uncomfortable for me. It's because I felt like he was trying – tell me that's why he was uncomfortable. Um, It's because I don't – like to write or read men physically intimidating women. It's not something I typically would do. But like I said, I did feel like when I was writing that scene, I did go, well, what would he do if a man did this? I said, he probably would put a man on the floor. And so, you know, crowding um, a weir a little bit until she backed off, intimidating her a little bit until she backed off. Um, I'm talking about Primus. It's not on my site. Um, although I thought about putting it up on um, the Wild Hair Project, so I may do that. It may be a post-Smackdown podcast uh, present. 
it's not ready for my site, <laughs> but I, I might put it over a mile here. Um, yeah, but I mean, there's there are. Um, I think in most of my stories, there's some level of confrontation like that, some sort of come to Jesus meeting, um, because it is a trope that I like. I do like that kind of the reckoning. Um, but even an implied come to Jesus meeting can be good, right? Um, you read there that you ever read that story where. It's like you get to that point and you know that bad shit's about to come down. They kind of fade to black, sort of like a sex scene. It's like a, it's sort of like a fade to black on a, <laughs> on a, on a, on a verbal evisceration, and it can still be satisfying. Because you, you know, know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to disagree with you on that. You can fade to black on a sex scene. I can use my imagination. I've got a great one. I probably write sex better <laughs> than most writers anyway. That's ugly. I don't regret it. Um, but. I want to see somebody get smacked down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing you can't cock block me, here. but don't block me on the um, on the righteous indignation. <laughs> like I need that moment. I need the catharsis. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't. There are plenty of writers who write really good sex scenes. I read one the other day on um, the Port Key, the, the unofficial Port Key archive. Made my mouth drop open. I was like, holy shit, girl. <laughs> you bring it. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, you know, I can supply my own sex scene in my head. But I need to know what your character's mad about. <laughs> Well, I guess I guess if you know already know what they're mad about and you know what's rattling around in their head, um, when it comes to the confrontation, um, I don't know. I don't One know. Of my I, I, I usually prefer, I prefer to read it, but you know. One of my favorites that I wrote, um Port Key is a Harry um, a Harry Hermione archive for for Harry Potter fiction. It went down, so there's an unofficial um, Port Key archive that someone managed to put up, um, and you can download everything on the archive in a big zip file. So I did that. Um, <clears throat> I regret nothing. It's a huge ass file, though. I had to put it on a um um. A USB drive. <laughs> Anyways, uh, <clears throat> my favorite moment of righteousness is in Darkly Loyal when Harry's about to kill Dumbledore. Harry gives Dumbledore <laughs> the opportunity to ask one question. And so Dumbledore asks about the Elder One. And Harry tells him, I am the Elder Wand. And that was like, yes. <laughs> because in that moment, Dumbledore knew that everything that had happened and everything he had done and everything he wanted to do was gone. It didn't matter if he lived or died in that moment. 
nothing he wanted was ever going to happen. Because he was stand, he was in front of the embodiment of the unbeatable wand from death's own hand. It was so satisfying to write that I got up and did a little rocky dance afterwards. <laughs> Sometimes you write something and when you get done, you're like, oh, shit, that was good, good, good. And it, I was like, I had that moment in that scene. Honestly, killing him was an afterthought. <laughs> That was a good moment. But it totally broke Dumbledore. It mm. was just total, you know, it was, total, total, it was totally destroying all of his, his life's work in, 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 in a sentence. You know what my favorite um, come to Jesus meeting was? And everything mm. I've ever written? It was, there was three, it was three. It was a series of three. It was Jenny Shepard. Um, acting like a boss with um, in De Novo when she talks to McGee, Ziva, and Abby. The three. It was. Just, I think. What I think. I'm a chapter or chapter and a half. I guess there's four because she also gently took Ducky to task too. But um, there's something very satisfying about writing a leader at NCIS behaving like a responsible leader. Adult. Um, yeah, <laughs> acting like an adult. Look at her adulting. There's something, amazing. there's something very satisfying about writing the adulting that I was like, oh, that felt really good. I, it, I, and at that time, that was one of the early chapters, and that's when I was really uncertain about that story. Um, I was in a bad place, and I kind of put the story aside after that, and then went back and revisited it. Um, but I wasn't certain how I felt about it when I wrote it, um, if it was good or not. But it felt very satisfying writing it. I was like, okay, that felt good. Now I need to set this aside because I don't know if uh, other story seems weird to me. <laughs> but for quieter, for quieter kind of close um, confrontations, come to Jesus meetings. Um, in the journey home, I wrote um, Gibbs when Tony and Gibbs finally get Tony finally gets to confront Gibbs about everything that had happened. I had expected. Um, um, I had expected to write that scene very angry, but it came out very kind of hurt. And um, when it was over, I actually really liked how it came out. Uh, but it was kind of more of a quiet kind of sort of a "you hurt me" reckoning, and I don't understand why, and I want to understand. And it's it's probably one of my favorites, for all that it's also very short. I think my favorite ever SmackDown comes in um, Sandstorms by Mithron. Um, After Rodney is tortured on a planet and they finally rescue him and they brought him back to Atlantis and he is so furiously hurt emotionally. I love that story. Um... You'll only read it once. Oh. 
but it Thank is you. amazing. I recommend anybody who's in the Stargate fandom to read um, Sailstorm on Mithron. It is um, amazing, but it will kick you in the nuts. I, I, it is like, I mean, and I, and, you know, I you're talking, and I'm a person who reads um, Freedom is just, nothing, is just Another Word for Nothing Left to Lose. Once a year, I read the Freedom story, and I have read Sandstorms once. Um, but there's a moment when Rodney unloads on Weir, Beckett, and Shepard. Because this is a post-Duranda story, and they're all pissed off at him about Duranda. Um, and they haven't been treating him well, and John is no better. Um, sandstorms. Um, I'll find a link in just a minute. Um, and, uh. They're holding Rodney accountable for this mistake. Thank you, Edie. Um, and Nix. We're going to go with Nix. Um, <clears throat> uh, accountable for what happened in Duranda in such a way is so ugly. And he unloads on them about waking up the wraith, about Earth nearly being invaded because Elizabeth thought she could fucking negotiate with the wraith, about the Hoth virus. He takes them all through their mistakes and lets them know that he never once used their mistakes against them. But the first time he makes a catastrophic mistake, they all turned on him like snakes. And none of them deserve his forgiveness. And because the mistake, and this was, and the, on the planet, Rodney gets tortured because John makes a mistake. And John can't get to him. Until it's too late, until the damage is done, and it is a horrific torture. What what is done to Rodney in that story, um, and it is just is a visceral, satisfying. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, Rodney, you tell them, <laughs> you tell them. And he because it, it was just really good, and it and it honestly it really embodied my whole theory about that episode and how um yes Rodney was a little arrogant and he made a mistake, but really intelligent people make really big mistakes. Mhm. And but he didn't wake the race. He's not responsible for what's basically a genocide happening in Pegasus. But you never heard him throwing that shit in John's face. It And Elizabeth's behavior in that episode was so ridiculously outrageous. Does this story have a happy ending? <laughs> yeah, it does, actually. But the episode itself is just really infuriating. Oh, that episode is terrible. It's terrible. I, I can't even watch it. <laughs> I 
I'm not sure I could do a Duranda variations like we did with Dead Air because Duranda makes me so mad. It is a level. I mean, they abuse my unicorn. <laughs> yeah. And they were so unprofessional. And turned his professional failure into a personal one. And made it personal and ugly. And I just. Like they were all perfect and had never made any mistakes. And it's just, um, it's, it's, it's like that I have to ignore in order to write my OTP. <laughs> yeah. It, either ignore or you just go, hey, it went different in this universe. <laughs> this is the same. It didn't go universe. that way. It, it, it didn't happen here like that. Exactly, Edie. That, that Edie says in the chat room that they acted as though their mistakes were forgivable, but Rodney's wasn't. And Elizabeth almost caused the race invasion of Earth. How exactly does that compare to blowing up an, an, an uninhabited solar system? Granted, the property destruction is pretty large, but there was no one there. I mean, that one guy died, unfortunately, very early on in the experiment when everybody was on board with the experiment. So it's just, it's really it's infuriating. And so sandstorms, um, while a very difficult read emotionally is very good um and rodney has his moment and he lets them all know just how fucking unperfect they are imperfect unperfect imperfect imperfect i'm gonna go with unperfect because it sounds more fun unperfect which is not really a word i know anyways I might not have known it when I said it. I have brain fog. You have to forgive me. Well, you know, maybe not since no one apparently owned that, but still, the you know, the, the damage was pretty physically impressive. Oh, the chat room. There it is. Well, McKay was treated um, like an outsider in SG-1, because that's exactly what he was. Um, the character of McKay really was never supposed to be what McKay became. Um, when they when they put Atlantis together, um, the doctor, the, the scientist, was going to be a man named Ingram. And David Hewlett actually um, auditioned for the part of 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 Ingram, and they were all like, well, we really like David, but we already had a character that you play. Let's just put McKay over here. It'll be fun. So they did. But that was originally supposed to be a, a Dr. Ingram, 
who wasn't even white. <laughs> and David E. was all up in it auditioning anyway. <laughs> and so Rodney McKay became um, a, a series regular on Atlantis when he really was just this throwaway character as a foil for Carter in SG-1. And 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 they made they made a great choice letting Rodney um, come back and kind of bloom, letting, letting him bloom, bloom character a little bit because there wasn't. Um, I think I do know some people who could not let go of the way Rodney was portrayed in in SG One um, that they hated him from that moment on and couldn't let go of it. Um, but. Yeah, was that way. Him... He doesn't like the character of Rodney for that very reason. But he was so different in SGA that I just, I, it didn't, um, I don't know, it didn't bother me to let it go. Honestly, I was super excited when um, I realized that McKay was going to be a part of Atlantis because he was an asshole and I liked that. Because Carter... Yeah. Nobody had ever called Carter, Carter on her shit until no, Carter got McKay came along. Epic amount. Right. Carter got away with She was also an asshole. So she got away with epic amounts of crap. Nobody else on the show could get away with. Um, because it was funny to me that the show had so much indignation embedded in the writing around Trinity. And there was none around some of the colossal fuck-ups that Carter had made. Oh, like when they see put that a wormhole of... through that sun and nearly destroyed a whole planet until the Asgard yeah, I mean, came along and fixed it. Yeah, there was the, there was no um, they had this moral indignation about Rodney's choices sort of built into the writing of that episode, but you didn't see that kind of moral indignation um, about any things Carter had done. Which means that, that fundamentally the writers saw Carter's behavior differently than McKay's, which I find to be bizarre. Because McKay, McKay didn't have tits. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I've been sitting here looking at some of my favorite NCIS stories, trying to think of NCIS stories I've read where there was a, a come to Jesus meeting in it that I really enjoyed. And, and I'm sure there are some, it's just None of them are jumping to my mind right now. Um, and then I thought I was looking, surfing past something, and I thought about kind of a different, um, a different take on the, the sort of the the um, come to Jesus meeting, which was um, it was one of the, it was probably the first. Um, mothership story I read, which was the um, Altering Destiny series by Shade Shifter. Uh, I think that's what the series is called. Is that the series is called? Da-da. Yes, Altering Destiny. And um, the it's more of an awareness of the problem that is handled in a subtle way through because um, you're not even sure in the early part of the series, as I recall, because I, I haven't read this probably in you know, seven or eight months. 
but there's an early part of the series where um, you're not sure why Tony is as off as he is, why he's, because I think the first story in the series is like called How to Court an Emotionally Guarded um, Ex-Federal Agent, because Tony's a private eye in that story. And it's not really revealed until the fourth story, kind of what's going on with him. And it's revealed when Tony asks, Tony has to go undercover, um, even though he's a PI, he's going undercover. And he asks, Chin's going to be doing monitoring comms. And he asks Chin, he says, you know, could, I need to do something for me. And that's, would you keep up a talk to me the whole time I'm under so that I know that you're there? And you know immediately. And McGee is in the van. Right. And, and the, he looked confused the, by that for a second. Yes, exactly. And the 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 reckoning is in the way Steve's team, the five O team, interacts with and handles um and their reactions to and the things they say to the team from NCIS. And it's really subtle kind of um reckoning that happens. Um and Tony keeps trying to get Steve to dial it down. But it, it, it was really interesting because um, it was all handled in nuance, but it was definitely handled. And it was, it was satisfying. It was still satisfying, but it was also, it was also heartbreaking. Um, and sometimes, sometimes the come to Jesus meeting is heartbreaking. And so it was a really different way of kind of handling that moment of, that kind of catharsis um, um, that I just really love. Like I said, it, it, it's what sold me on that pairing. <laughs> the like, mothership. Oh, the mothership. All aboard the mothership. Because I think, I think, I think, and I have to go back and read her, her author notes for the first, I'm on the fourth, I had the fourth story open, but, um, I think in her author notes, she's like, this pairing seems so obvious or something like that because these guys are in the same universe. Yeah. She says, I can't believe this pairing doesn't exist somewhere since this has been sitting in my hard drive for another, about another year. She's even in the same universe, technically. Right. It is. I mean, when you think of like people you could pair Tony with, why wouldn't you, he's right there in the same universe. You don't even have to make weird crossover leaps. It was just so obvious. And then she went and did it. And then I read it and I went, Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh hell yes. Oh, oh. The Where world have you just been got all fixed. my life. <laughs> it's and, perfect because uh, it totally fixes my problem with Danny. <laughs> Danny's yeah, just a sidekick <laughs> now. I don't care how often he fucks his ex wife. Problem solved. <laughs> Yeah, and Barbara Barb pointed out that he, Chen's reaction is he's just like Chen was very kind of chill about. It. He's like, "Hey, you're the one undercover. You get what you need." And he just and talked Tim to him. Asked him, "Why? What?" And um, Tim says, "Chen says whoever's undercover gets what they want. It's our job to support the person who is who's putting their life on the line." And that's and like there's like a there might as well have been a light bulb go over. Go off above McGee's head. That's when he yeah. realized his fuck up. But it was subtle and it was beautiful and it was it was the birth of the mothership and it just doesn't get any better, you know. Um, 
Yeah, I love that story. I, I, I say I haven't read it in like six or seven months because I, I haven't been reading as much NCIS lately. But I, I read that story at least three or four times a year. Because <laughs> it's the mothership. I, there's just nothing better, I don't think. I mean, it's just amazing. I just, yay. <laughs> I was so excited. I, I kind of rage quit the Hawaii Five-O fandom after the whole Rachel thing. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. It was really upsetting. Dan turned out to be a douchebag. You know, and it's like, okay, you you get the impression, actually, that Rachel cheated on Danny with Stan. She left Danny for Stan. You get that impression just, you know, from background noise um, in, in, in various conversations throughout the, the, the first season. So, there's a, a little bit of revenge porn there that Danny turns around and not only fucks his ex-wife, but gets her pregnant. <laughs> While she's married to the man that she left him for. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, but this, this is, I, mean, I, mean, I don't know if that makes it <laughs> but better or not. It's also amusing. It's also yeah. kind of amusing. Because what's that old saying, what he'll do with you, he'll do to you? Um, or what she'll do with you, she'll do to you. So there's a little bit of Stan, what did you expect? Um, but still, it's like, um, I don't know. But my, my grandma always I mean, I used to say is that you will lose him the way you got him. Yeah. So if you're dating well, but, a married man and you marry that man... Watch out for his secretary, <laughs> or something along I had those lines. I had an aunt who had a had a thing for married men, and um, I asked her, you know, I asked her once, she does does that concern you sleeping with somebody else's, you know, husband? And she said, hey, their their fidelity is not my problem. <laughs> and wow. And you know, yeah, it's, it's cold. It was cold, and I don't. I certainly don't agree with her. Um, but based upon her worldview, Danny. Was Danny and Stan were never never the problem person in that situation? It was always Rachel who was committing adultery. Um, but still, it's just like I mean, from her worldview, that would work that way. But um, and it's true. I mean, Danny hasn't didn't violate any of his vows when he slept with Rachel while she was married to Stan. But still, um, ooh, ooh. Apparently that can happen. <laughs> in the chat room, I hate to do it to people in the podcast because they won't know what's going on. In the chat room, someone said, I see it as Danny still being in love with Rachel and deeply hurt and resentful about the divorce and moved. So when he was sick and possibly dying, Rachel came to him and he fell into a bad place. And I said, you mean he fell into pussy? And she said, yeah, like I said, a bad place. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, so, you know, 
I really would like for Stan to have a moment of of righteous um, fuck you in uh, in Hawaii Five O, but does he really deserve it? Because I I feel like that he you know broke up that marriage and family and then took Danny's kid out of the out of the out of the off the fucking continent. <laughs> so, but then but then so he did that. But then Rachel turned around and passed off some other guy's kid as his. Yes. Which is like ten times more ugly than just cheating on him. Right. Get attached to this child. Love them as your own. And I'm not saying you can't love a child who and get attached to a child who isn't biologically yours. But Stan needed to know that he, odds are, he was not going to have custody of that kid. Yes, Dan did take a bullet for Grace. He stood there and let Danny shoot him. For Grace. And then Danny turns around and fucks his wife. And knocks his wife up. Way to be grateful. (laughs) Merry Christmas. It's just, it's just ugly, and so I have a real problem with the Danny-Steve pairing now, because Steve's a unicorn, and he deserves better. <laughs> it's because he deserves Tony. <laughs> she must do something. She must have something going on. Um, But, yeah, so... After the cheating incident? So I watched it after the cheating? I must have. But I did rage quit it. I haven't watched it in a long time. Especially when I watched it, Max was still the um, the the coroner. I think he's gone now. Anyways. <clears throat> I just stopped watching it because it was just too much. I didn't get to the point. I don't think I actually watched the episode where we find out that the baby is Danny's. I found that in, out in fandom. I think I found that one out through fandom too. I mean, I I've seen. I probably managed. I probably see um, since season two. I've probably seen five or six episodes a season. It, it's sort of like passive exposure through family full of people who still watch Hawaii Five O. So, you know, it just it happens sometimes. It's like, okay, I'm going. It's like, no, you can't leave. I'm like, oh. Oh yeah, I can. Watch me. <laughs> watch me as I go. So we've talked about the um sort of a, we've talked about kind of the direct the group confrontation, confronting everybody all at once in a public place. Um, and depending upon how that is handled, can be very cathartic or very, oh, what did you do? Because um, that can result in, you know, like, like you said, burning your own house down. Um, so we talked about the doing it. There's the one-on-one 
um, angry confrontation. There's the one-on-one kind of hurt confrontation. There's the confrontation by proxy. Somebody else does it for you. Um, trying to think of what other kinds of smackdowns we get. Oh, I don't know that I don't think I've read this, but I would really like to. It's sort of like the confrontation through a court court courtroom. Like um, Tony um, sues McGee for um, the whole book crap and the way he portrayed him in the book, and like the whole thing comes out. In Tony doesn't say a word; it's all his lawyer <laughs> asking questions or in a deposition or something. That could be entertaining. I like doing courtroom scenes in Harry Potter because I don't have to adhere to, to rules. I can make up my own stuff. Um, and I like to uh, lay down some truth on people in court settings because it's, like, really controlled and they can't say anything back. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's really fun. <laughs> There's also the um, – this, this is a trope you see used sometimes where um, it's kind of the outside person point of view who comes into a dysfunctional situation and sees it for dysfunctional and kind of asks questions kind of dryly like, oh, really? So you left your partner without backup because he occasionally snooped into your purse? And that seems reasonable to you. That kind of thing where you kind of – Asking questions. So that can also be kind of entertaining where you've got an outsider um, coming in and asking questions to expose the problem. And uh, people are kind of shamed. Um, that can be an entertaining way of having the, the moment of reckoning. I think the ultimate moment of reckoning is killing your enemy. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> Character death. It's that moment when they realize, oh, fuck, I'm not getting out of this. <laughs> this is where I end. <laughs> I don't kill people very often. I do think it's been an oversight, that one that I need to... I don't either, I uh, but, then I, but, but then I did. I, I killed a lot of people, and it was really very entertaining. Now, I've killed, I've killed people who die in canon in different ways than they died in canon. But um, it's not quite the same thing. <laughs> no. No, it really isn't. Because <laughs> it's like, well, they're going to be dead anyway. I'm just going to kill them earlier or later or, you know. In um, in the story I wrote, the Derek Tony story I wrote where it's, um, it's held imperfect, um, I had set up where, like, Tony is, like, he's not going to talk to Gibbs. You know, they've had a moment. Gibbs kind of – he kind of confronts Gibbs on the phone, and he realized Gibbs just kind of ghosted him, and he just kind of gives up on talking to him. And he's, like – he kind of, like, tried to sever that emotional tie. And um, and then Gibbs turns up having changed his mind. And Tony is all set to um, go and give Gibbs a piece of his mind. He's, like, I don't want – first he says, I don't want to talk to him. And then he's like, oh, you know what, never mind. I do want to talk to him. <laughs> and he's all set to go in and just rip him a new one. 
and he kind of walks into the room and he realizes how damaged Gibbs is. And he still says some pretty choice things, actually. Um, I think he tells Gibbs that just because he suffered doesn't mean that he has the right to treat everybody else like shit. Um, but he really starts pulling his punches because he realizes how broken Gibbs is. Because it's his first time being around Gibbs since he came online as a guide. And um, um, there was something kind of, I thought that was realistically how that scene would have gone down. But I kind of was pouty, too, at the same time, because I was like, aw. <laughs> I, he didn't get to really tell Gibbs off the way he wanted to. That's sad. You can always have somebody else do it. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think other people did tell Gibbs off. <laughs> and sometimes the high road isn't nearly as satisfying as they say it is. That's true. I didn't have I think, John break Diva's nose in a story. Um, that he was did. Really that was really satisfying. Yeah, I I enjoyed that. Um, it should have I think that me, honestly, but it didn't. In, in fandom, um, Tony is that one character that when you when you let him have his say, it is just really satisfying to read. Um, unless he goes too far and turns into an abusive asshole, and, and then you're all disappointed in the author. You're like, man, come on. <laughs> Don't get my unicorn dirty. <laughs> yes, he, Tony's not going to be abusive. What's the matter with you? Some of my favorite writers in NCIS don't um, write the proverbial come to Jesus meeting. Um, it's not part of their um, story dynamic. So, like looking at my, some of my favorite NCIS stories, like, they don't do it. They don't do it. They, there's no, there's, I love that story and there's no smack down in it. So it's not, it is not a necessity for a good story in NCIS or Harry Potter for there to be the SmackDown, but it is so satisfying when it's there. Edie, I need a link to that. There's also a fic a while ago where Tony went to the FBI instead of NCIS, and each chapter showed how the lack of Tony fucked the MCRT in many, many different ways. I need that link. I'm pointing my finger at you. <laughs> But I think that honestly, that's actually a, a, you know can can be very satisfying to the reader if you um, have your character just exit and take no shit about coming back and no, and not even indulge discussion. You know, it's like I'm done. I'm a hundred thousand percent done with you, and we're never doing it again. This this is done. I'm finished. And that can be so satisfying, especially when it's Tony. When he doesn't even entertain the idea of accepting an apology or taking his job back. And it's just like, fuck all (laughs) y'all. I am done. I'm going to Hawaii. I'm going to live happily ever after with a Navy SEAL. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. 
That's love right there, right there, right there. That's love. All aboard the mothership. It's also, it can be really satisfying when it was Harry Potter. When, um, you know what the most frustrating thing I find in Harry Potter fic is the idea that he owes it to the Weasley family to marry Jenny. He owes them. What the fuck are you thinking, writers, to say that either one of them owe somebody else their body? You realize marriage is... is, What the hell could the Weasley family have done? It's It's like the writer is saying that everybody in the magical world only fought the war because Harry because of Harry. That it's all his fault. It got fought for him. They all fought for him and if he hadn't been there they wouldn't have fought. Maybe they wouldn't have. Maybe they'd have all died under Voldemort. Who knows? So and then turned around and he apparently owes them. I hate that I hate that fucking idea that Hermione owes Ron and should marry him. Or Harry owes the Weasley family, so he should marry Jenny. I just want to fucking punch writers who write that shit. They don't owe them unless people anything. respond to it in an appropriate way. Like, oh my god, are you stupid? What the hell? That's that's not right. And for the record, you don't owe somebody your body. And the most galling thing about that whole thing is that in canon, Harry dies for them. He dies for them all. He sacrifices himself for the magical world. And then writers turn around and do that whole thing where he owes Jenny something. And that's the sad reason, tragedy reason, that he can't pursue who he really wants it happens over and over again in in, in fanfic Um, and it's just it's so galling it's galling it just it's 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 so fucking infuriating just So it's always fun for me when Tony says, I don't owe you bitches. I mean, when when Harry says, I don't owe you bitches jack shit. <laughs> I don't owe you anything. I don't care how many of you died. I don't owe you anything. I never owed you anything to begin with. He's fighting a war that started before he was even born. He started a war. He he ended a war that, by all rights, should have ended before he was ever born. That never, honestly, should have began to begin with. If Tom Riddle hadn't been raised in a, um, hadn't been fostered in such a um, racist and disgusting environment, and they didn't have any protocols in place to take care of magical children that were in the Muggle world, and it's just. That kind of, it, it's infuriating. 
(laughs) (laughs) Harry Potter fandom, you piss me off. It makes me so mad. (laughs) Sometimes, the side thing is, sometimes with the Harry Potter fandom, um, you you just it's like things are going well, and this is the hard part, is things are going well, and all of a sudden, oh, no, wait, what are you doing? No, 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 no. That's that's not what I was expecting. Um, uh, it, it just it takes a turn that is so incongruent with what you've read so far, at least as perception is, my perception is, is incongruent. And you don't really know how to react to what you're reading because it's just it's it's like I will say that the, the writers in Harry Potter fandom have an infinite imagination. <laughs> it, sometimes it, it's like, why would you go there? No, Harry you know what I think that. it is. I think that J.K. Rowling spent seven books torturing the fuck out of Harry Potter, and there are. Plenty of writers in the Harry Potter fandom who feel um, entitled to do the same. <laughs> now, what I like to focus on justice and Harry getting justice and Harry fucking people up who mess with him. That's my goal. That that's how I fix Harry Potter. Um, and I, I I'm a firm believer in in justice <laughs> and in the American way. All up in that British story. <laughs> <laughs> it's about revenge, well, baby. <laughs> I also, I think I do think that also there's this inclination um um there's this inclination um to try to be original. To try to do it in a way nobody has ever done. And sometimes I think it, my impression is that authors are pursuing originality at the expense of their story. And um, like they, and not even so much that they, it's a deliberate decision, but that they're so focused on being original that they haven't paused to consider if it works. And sometimes when you get blinders on to any one facet of a story, you, you kind of, the, the, the whole, it doesn't hold together entirely. And, I don't know. The, the pursuit of originality I see in every, actually most fandoms that are big, um, you eventually see that come out is that people are trying so hard to be different from everybody else um, that, that they start writing in sentence fragments. <laughs> you know what, though? I'm going to tell you something. Um, writing in segments fragments or not putting quotes around your dialogue um, it's not original it's not cute it's not um, art, it's not an artistic choice it's just bullshit and you need to stop please stop 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 you need to stop putting character dialogue for five people in one paragraph that'd be great um, it's not cute it's wrong you're not being brave or artistic. You're just being wrong. <laughs> and don't center your fucking fic. Yeah, God. God. 
No. Or put the whole thing in italics or I mean, there's a reason why these things come came and went and they didn't catch on is because, you know, they don't work. Um, it, they may have worked maybe one author sold a book that was written entirely in sentence fragments. Um or was and, written and with no capital people, letters. Right. And fifty people tried to replicate that success and they didn't succeed because it's a novelty thing that might have worked once, but it just doesn't it just doesn't keep working. So I, there is a story, I finally remember an NCIS that has um, a lot of very grown up um, Tony handling shit. Um, its story is called Home by Jules Monster. And it is a story where Tony um, takes the road of promotion. And when he comes back to NCIS in DC, he's coming back as the director. And, I love that. Um, I, I love that. I almost said episode. I love that episode. Like it happened again because I wish it had. We want it to happen so badly. And he has confrontations basically with everybody uh, in his capacity as the director. And he he has to be an adult about how he handles this because he's the director of a federal agency. And um, it's all very understated, but it's also all very satisfying. So I highly recommend that. I do um, see a lot of things um, when I can't write. I'm I'm all over fandom trying to figure things out, you know, to read because, damn. Um, and it can be very frustrating if um, I encounter uh, a story that I, that to some reason sounds really good, and that's what boils down to that. The comment I made on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, a week and a half ago. Um, the the summary sounds great, and I get into it, and there are no fucking dialogue tags, and there's two characters speaking in the same paragraph, and I can't tell who's talking, and they're using single quotes instead of double quotes, and I think that's probably a British thing. I find it really annoying, um, and some of it's in italics, and they keep putting number signs by the parcel tongue and I, <laughs> I just <laughs> really wish somebody competent has that idea <laughs> I can't take it I can't well, and people everybody's shouting because they see other people do stuff um, and taking your cues um, when it comes to matters of formatting from fandom take it from books people take it from books (laughs) don't take your cues from from some author you found that you like and go oh that looks kind of cool this is how one-sided phone conversations caught on it's just not the way to go it's just it's take you don't you don't see that crap in a book it's not one that's been professionally edited um and it's the same thing with the whole smackdown trope is the abusive smackdown um people have read it and it spoke to them in some way and so they they turned around and they wrote it and you know it just have, there kind of needs to be a little bit of a critical filtering process <laughs> about what you pick up from fandom um, and making your hero an abusive asshole um, is something you don't want to pick up from from fandom Ever. don't do it 
Don't fall for that shit. Because it makes your hero unsympathetic. So why do we care if they get the job at the FBI? Or why do we care if he's successful with his time travel? Because he's an asshole. You know? You don't... I mean, when you start rooting for the bad guy, it's like, hey, I hope Baltimore wins in this battle. (laughs) It's like, he may have gone a smidge too far with Harry, independent Harry. Please note my airport. Unless Harry has allied himself with Voldemort. And then good job. You, well, you've accomplished your goal. Here you go. As goals but go. Harry, I don't recommend it. But. Okay. Although I have, I have to say, if Harry's going to ally himself with Voldemort, the independent Harry who's having childish tantrums everywhere is the last person Voldemort's going to put up with. <laughs> Are you kidding? Because that's all he does, too. Right, exactly. You can't have two of them. They kill each other. That's like they're gonna call me. What? Like I tell my husband, there can only be one bitch in this house, and it's me. There can only be one person throwing childish tantrums in this relationship, and it's gonna be me. <laughs> so you better act like a grown up, you fifteen year old. Well, that's basically exactly what Dumbledore says to to, to Harry about Snape. Uh, be the bigger man, be the grown-up, act mature, blah, blah, blah. Everybody yeah, does a... this to Snape. They all take the high road and act like an adult because he can't. The funny thing about Snape is the, the premise of Snape makes no sense. The premise of how Snape was allowed to behave like he did, it doesn't make sense. Because what we see regurgitated in fan fiction is that he had to act that way to preserve his cover. How did that preserve his cover? How did Dumbledore getting up in front of the wisdom, the wisdom, the wisdom, whatever, and tell everybody that Snape was a spy for him, and he has his complete trust, um, do anything for his cover? Right. Assuming he could write that off. If Snape is going to be a successful... If he's a spy and he's successfully spying for Voldemort, it means he needs to be accepted by Dumbledore. Dumbledore tolerating a bad teacher is indicative of Snape spying for Dumbledore because it means Dumbledore's got motivation to keep a bad teacher. So how? But the whole idea is that Snape. But the thing you see people saying is that. Um, in, in fan fiction, the trope you hear, the thing you hear repeated, is Snape acts the way he does to preserve his cover with Voldemort. Well, in order to preserve his cover as a spy for Voldemort, he would actually need to treat the students well. I mean, am I missing some critical point of logic? Because wouldn't he be trying to no. maintain his job? Wait, no, you're not he, missing isn't, it. Isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal, is to maintain his job and to maintain a job as a teacher? Don't you have to be a good teacher? I don't know. I've never quite understood the logic behind that, but, you know, we repeat it enough until we accept it as truth, but it doesn't actually make any sense. The only way it actually makes sense is if Dumbledore and Voldemort were actually working together. They both clearly had reasons for putting up the Snape's character deficiencies. Right? I mean, <laughs> so, 
crazy. Honestly, I don't see how Potter's first year, when Snape goes around doing everything he possibly can to thwart Quarles' attempts to kill Harry, didn't reveal to Voldemort that Snape might not actually be on his side. Whereas the first time that Lucius Malfoy gets an opportunity to be alone with Harry, he tries to kill him. Yes. Because loyal Snape was not loyal to anybody. That's not genius, sweetheart. I was talking earlier um, in the chat room um, about, um, in the private chat, about um, Dumbledore and um, Riddle, and um, it's about my James Potter story, and I'm trying to figure out exactly where Dumbledore stands. Um, and there's this there's this common fan theory that um, that basically that Harry's up bringing mirroring riddles was done on purpose by Dumbledore as a social experiment to prove to himself that it wasn't his fault that Tom Riddle became a dark wizard. So he put Harry basically in the same position. I've seen that in that. That is Um, many stories. Yeah. But I was talking about it to Lady Holder and how I thought that it might be interesting if um, Riddle and Harry both, or especially Riddle, um, was more of a social experiment for Dumbledore to validate his own return to the light. And that he created Riddle in order to redeem him as a form of self-validation to prove to himself that his road back to the light was true and and that he was capable of doing it again and again that that he could redeem all these death eaters and he could redeem riddle um um to um to validate his own redemption which lady horse said was creepy I don't find it any creepier, actually less creepy (laughs) because he, because actually for me, um, that is his own desperate need to believe in his lightness. Um, and he's, it's pathetic, but, um, it's actually creepier to be, um, sort of Machiavellian with, with people's lives the way he is implied in the other variant of that, um, which is where he's just, you know, proving that, it's the person who's he's trying to prove it. The person it's the person who's bad. Um, it has nothing to do with their upbringing. Um, one's rats in a maze, and one is um, a sort of a pathetic attempt to um, believe in himself. To 
prove himself. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ass spends a hell of a lot more than 12 minutes in the corner, trust us. <laughs> but, um, I don't, you know, so I'm just trying to figure out what kind of, um, what kind of, uh, position I'm going to put Dumbledore in in my James Potter series, um, and, um, and what that means, uh, for book two and three. Because before it's posted, I have an opportunity here to, to determine what kind of, opposition Dumbledore is going to be. Is he manipulating for the sole purpose of seeing the prophecy settled to get rid of Tom Riddle? Or is it something um, more insidious? Uh, Is it not... Is it less greater good and more Dumbledore good? (laughs) Is he... Are his motivations self-absorbed? Is, 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 um, so, you know, it, the problem is, is that because I can't figure out my insertion point for book two. And we've the already discussed. The insertion point is a pain in the ass. Point, it is a pain in the ass. The insertion point is an actually pain in the ass. Um, I'm having a hard time deciding um, uh, if there's something actually wrong with book one, because I thought there was something wrong with book one, but I think it's more about where I want book two to start. That is the problem with book one, which I probably doesn't make any sense to you guys. And I'm sorry. I just, um, I feel like I'm missing something and, um, it's not something that it's, if I posted it right now, most of you would be like, "Well, Kara, it's fine. What's your problem?" <laughs> well, of course, of course they would because it is fine. It's awesome. But um, yeah, Julie I, did say it was a, one of her favorites that I've written. It is. It may be my favorite. Um, but because it is, um, you're such a you're you're such a plotter, um, and you have this big question mark over book one. Um, in terms of Dumbledore, um, right? That it has to feel like the loose end, and and I don't know. I mean, I don't know that I would feel comfortable even. I I I don't plot as 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 much as as intensely as you do, or as um, I plot, but I don't plot as in depth as you do. So I don't even. I don't know that I would feel comfortable with such a major. Um, source of motivation. You've got such a Dumbledore has a, a huge uh, presence in the Harry Potter um, franchise in terms of his motivations drove a lot. And Dumbledore's motivations, once the Potters live and once, you know, um, it, it, based on the stuff that you talked about when we did that plot drift, Dumbledore's motivations are sort of, you know, and with the way things go in the story um, that weren't discussed in the plot drift, are throw him even more into an ambiguous space and he's such a power player in the series that I I could see why it would be uncomfortable to not answer that question in canon he was ambiguous in canon Um, and he was ambiguous but you could still see the actual the actual motivation literally what was going on with him was ambiguous but he you could still see him pulling the thread he was still a power player Whereas in your story, um, it goes very differently for him. 
So he's effectively neutered. You do neuter him. You, you completely neuter him in that story. So it's like, is he going to have a presence? Is he not? Is he, I mean, and if he has a presence, he could be a, a massive presence in terms of um, protagonist, antagonist. Is he going to provide, is he going to be external motivation? Um, is he going to be, you know, close to them? I mean, so I would think that'd be a big question that, um, and because you like to foreshadow things, um, that if you're going to use him in a major way in book two, you're going to want to foreshadow it in book one. You're kind of fading away from the mic a little bit. Did you move away? Oh, I put my hand right over it. Um, <laughs> I, could see why you, I could see why you might want to um, foreshadow um, if he's going to, what you're going to do with him later in book one. Um, so, I mean, that question mark might be uncomfortable. I do have some foreshadowing already in it. Um, for future interactions with Dumbledore. But this has actually been frustrating me so much that I considered killing him. Well, that would solve the but problem. One thing, one thing I have with my insertion point is when and where Harry Potter ends up at Hogwarts. And something you said in the previous podcast has been kind of sticking in my head. And, it, and it's like, how can I justify James and Lily sending Harry to Hogwarts when they know that Dumbledore set them up to die in Godric's Hollow. What responsible parent would send their kid to Hogwarts? And then it right. comes to me last night, in James's current position in that fic, which I don't want to talk about yet, I'm, I'm, I'm not cock-teasing you because this, this book is coming, you guys. I want to have it up before Evil Author Day. Um, that's my goal. Um, so, in James' current position, how the fuck can he let Dumbledore stay in Hogwarts at all? Right. But the other side of it is, is how does he get him out without looking like a tyrant? Because to the average everyday man, Dumbledore is 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 good and light, and um, he's educated um, a large portion of the population that are adults in Britain. So how do um, how does James get rid of him? Where there's really no evidence to be found, complete tyrant and turning Dumbledore into a, a political figure that could be more dangerous for Harry later on than he currently is. So, it's an issue. It is an issue. Because I don't want to... um, I want Dumbledore's motivations to be grounded in a realistic place. As opposed to somebody who's evil for the sake of being evil. Um, I try not to do that ever. I, I, I try not to do that. I, I try to give my villains a very realistic place that, that they come from. Um, because evil with no yeah. reason doesn't appeal to me. We're down to two minutes. Um, so, you know, this is not what the podcast was about. But, you know, I think smacking Dumbledore down um, is the goal of practically any fan fiction writer. <laughs> <laughs> 
and, and, and how you go about it is is up to you. Um, to be, and on that point, even authors, a lot of authors I've read who like Dumbledore, they still have that moment when Harry and Dumbledore, a lot of them still have that moment when Harry and Dumbledore talk where it's like, why did you do this? And Dumbledore has to have it. So there is still that that reckoning that come to Jesus meeting still happens um, even with authors who really like Dumbledore and they're like, well, never bash him because he does have shit to explain. And Harry has a justifiable gripe. I think even J.K. Rowling had that moment since Dum- since Harry got to destroy Dumbledore's office in book five. <laughs> yes, exactly. But so, yeah, as, as soon as I figure out what my problem is, um, that book's going to go into a final beta, um, and then it'll be up on my site. And it is 60K, and it is um, told majority from James Potter's point of view. And so I hope that you guys will um, enjoy it and, and give it a shot because I realize that um, maybe that point of view probably isn't as popular in the Harry Potter fandom. A lot of people have a lot of problems with James, especially if you're a Snape fan. But I'm not a Snape fan, and so fuck all that. Uh, say goodnight, Jilly. Good night, everyone.